0: morning, everyone. There we go. Welcome to Chatham Community Church. I'm glad y'all are here this morning. There's some faces I haven't seen in a really, really long time. So if that's you, I'm especially glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to extend a particularly warm welcome to those for whom this is your first time or who are relatively new to our community. We're so glad that you're here. If you've not yet received one of our welcome gifts, make sure you get one on your way out. It's a way in which we support local businesses, so it helps us bless the community, so make sure you grab one on your way out. And if you are relatively new to our community, even if today is your first Sunday with us right after the service, we're going to have something called starting point, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a great starting point for anyone who's new or relatively new to our community. It is a brief gathering after the service right in the room that's just here to my left. Uh, It's with people who, like you, are relatively new to our community and are trying to figure out what we're about here at Chatham Community Church and whether this might be a good place uh, for them to be uh, settled and to be part of a community for the long term. So I'll be there. A few other key leaders from our community will be there, and other people like you who are relatively new to our community will be there. Uh, people have made connections in that, they've uh, started to build friendships, and they found ways to plug in and serve in our community, so make sure you join us. Hey, it won't be long, it usually takes uh, around 20 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes, and then um, uh, you'll be off and able to be on your way, and it takes about that long uh, because it's designed to be brief and also because I get hungry and want to go eat, so <laughs> so we keep it uh, brief for all of us, uh, but so glad that you're here. I want you to picture with me for a second Uh, a store. And in that store, think of it as a store in a mall, uh, there is a young man who is waiting in one of many lines to get to the counter and an employee behind the counter. There are multiple employees. It's the holiday season. So there are lots of lines. There's lots of hustle and bustle going on. Employees trying to be quick at speaking to people at the counter and then rushing to the back to get inventory, get product, make sales, and move people along. As the Young man nears the front of the line. He looks one line over. It's the line that's closest to the door. And he sees the man that's in front of the line reach over the counter and into the glass display that's under the counter and starts to grab something as the employee has gone back uh, to go and get some inventory. Now, the young man notices this and says something. He says, hey, hey, stop that. He's trying to draw attention and maybe get the man to stop, when all of a sudden, out of his blind spot, someone else sort of pops in in front of him and starts to sort of confront him and say, hey, stop that. What are you doing? And starts to say things like, you know, we're in a hard spot, and we need to get gifts for our kids, and you need to stop bothering us. And he's trying to make a case, but all of it sounds incredibly threatening. What to do now? Does the young man continue down this path of intervention? He could press the issue further. He could draw even greater attention, not just to the man who is reaching over the counter, but even to the man who is threatening him. Now, this might put him in danger. The man who's confronting him is aggressive. He's threatening, but, but it's the right thing to do, right? Now, maybe he should back down in just a moment, right, and, and wait until the two leave and then tell the employee, and maybe they'll call security and pick them up somewhere, in the mall, that's still an okay thing to do, right? Well, I'd love to tell you that I did either of those on that day many years ago, but I didn't. I got scared. I got scared and did nothing. I backed down. I watched the two men walk out of the store with stolen merchandise, the employee, none the wiser, and then I had my turn at the front of my line, and I didn't say anything I said what I wanted, I made my purchase, and I started to walk out. The whole thing took but a few minutes. But as I was turning to leave the store, I caught the eye of a young boy that was looking at me. He was one line over from me and a couple of slots back, and he looked me straight in the eye. And there was something about the way he was looking at me that convinced me that he had seen what had happened that he had seen what had gone on. And I had this sense that somehow I'd let him down. Somehow I'd failed to set an example for him. This memory has stuck with me for about 20 years now because I'm pretty sure that on that day, I missed a signature moment. I missed an opportunity for myself to grow in my character and show what my character was, but I missed an opportunity to model something good for the next generation. As we've gone through the summer, we've been looking at lots of signature moments for the folks whose stories are contained in the ancient scriptures, and we've shared signature moments of our own. These are the kinds of stories that show moments of transformation in people's lives, and they're the kind of moments that, tra- that change people's legacy, that do good and bless people around them. Part of what we've hoped throughout this series is that it would help us be able to look back and name the signature moments in our lives, but also that it would create a longing in us for the ones that are to come and prepare us to be able to say yes to them, because we don't want to miss those kinds of opportunities. We don't want to miss signature moments because there's a cost. When we let signature moments pass us by, we miss out on part of God's work to shape us and the way God might use that to bless those around us. There's a cost to missing signature moments. Now, that being said, here's the truth. It's likely that at least one signature moment is going to pass us by. It's likely many will pass us by. In fact, it's likely we could go around the room and start talking about the signature moments we've let pass us by. Here's the good news. There's lots of grace Even though I let that one pass by, God has brought lots of opportunities for signature moments in the intervening years, and I'm sure he'll do the same for all of us. And that's encouraging, because the truth is that there are some signature moments that are hard to say yes to. Some signature moments are easy to recognize, they're easy to say yes to, they're easy to embrace, but some are hard. There are situations that are difficult, situations that are challenging, situations that are scary, Situations that are uncertain. And it makes sense that sometimes in those moments, we might let that signature opportunity pass us by. We might say no. We might miss the opportunity. The passage that Hillary read for us is a situation like that. It's a scary situation. It's a difficult situation. It's a challenging situation. It's a threatening situation. The stakes are high. And there are at least three signature moments that we can connect to this passage. And all three are high stakes. They're the types of signature moments that we'd understand if someone let pass by. In fact, one of them does pass by. And so in looking at them today, here's the invitation. Let's consider what we might need in order to be able to say yes when we come to those types of signature moments in our lives. The section that we heard Hillary read for us takes place in the early days of the Christian church. Locating it exactly is difficult. Some scholars estimate that it's uh, within the first year after Jesus has died and, and risen. Some scholars push it out as much as three years after Jesus has died and risen. Some push it out even further. It's hard to pin down exactly when. During that time, more and more people were starting to follow the Jesus way. More and more people were hearing the story. They were seeing the miracles. They were seeing the transformation that was happening. They were seeing the community that was forming, and they were becoming compelled and convinced that this message was true, that this message was real, that it was worth following. And because this was happening mostly around Jewish communities, conflict was occurring with the Jewish establishment, with the religious authorities. We see that play out here with Stephen. A group of members of a local synagogue try to engage him in argument, try to make the case that the Jesus way is not the right way, but his arguments, Stephen's arguments, keep proving more compelling. They keep proving more convincing. They keep proving more appealing. So then, clearly, they decide to consider that what he was preaching might be right. Right? That's what happened. Nope. They drum up some people to make false accusations. They rile up a crowd. They bring him to the religious authorities. They ask Jesus, they ask Stephen, sorry, to explain himself. And Stephen then proceeds to walk them through, to walk them through the story of God's history with them from the time of Abraham to the present day. And he highlights how time and time again, as a people, they've resisted the work of God. They've turned on the ones God has called. They've turned on the ones God has raised up from among them and the ones God has sent to them to bring truth, to bring righteousness, to lead them in the right path, even though they were supposed to be the ones who got it the best. They were supposed to be the ones who anticipated it the most. They were supposed to be the ones who had eyes to see most clearly. Time and time again, they said no. And he ties that to Jesus. And he says, you're doing it again. You've done it again. What, do you, what, what happens when you hear a pattern and you realize that there's a pattern in your life? The main character in the Orphan X series by Greg Hurwitz is a man who from an early age is taken from a group home for orphans. And he's, he's trained up. I know this is far-fetched, but feel free to suspend disbelief with, for just a second. He's trained to be an off-the-books government assassin. Yes, it's that type of series. Uh, And he's sent on missions as as a sort of a young adult, and he grows dissatisfied. He starts to question whether he's actually doing good. And so he leaves the program, and he dedicates the rest of his life to helping the disenfranchised, to helping the powerless, to helping people who are in really, really bad situations. And he's got lots of intimacy issues, and lots of issues with trust and with building healthy relationships, understandably, given his past. As the books progress, people start to sort of cobble together around him, some closer than others. And throughout the books, most of these people at one point or another recognize that he's got some intimacy issues, he's got some trust issues, he's got some relationship issues, and they broach the subject with him. And over and over again, he has no time for those conversations. He shuts them down, he moves ahead. And then in one of the later books, he's protecting a family. And he's watching them, and he sees a tender interaction between parents and an older child. And he realizes that he doesn't have that in his life. He never had that in his life. And he has a longing inside of him for it. And in the book, he starts talking to himself and listing all the relationships that he has and noting how in all of them there is a lack of intimacy, that the things he's seeing in this family he doesn't have with them, the type of relationship, the type of trust... And all of a sudden, he has this moment of realization where he kind of says, oh, the common denominator in all those things is me. Maybe something needs to change in me. And that's exactly what happened to the Jewish authorities in this passage, right? Obviously, they hear how this has been their story over and over again, and they have this moment of realization, and they decide to consider what Stephen is saying as true, right? Nope, they get angry, they gnash their teeth, they cover their ears, they shout Stephen down, and ultimately, they kill him. Repeating the story of their ancestors, they miss the signature moment of reconsidering their position so that they could receive God's truth. They miss out on being transformed. Take a moment and imagine how history would have been different if those people had changed their mind. If those people had been willing to consider that maybe Jesus was the Son of God. Imagine how the story would be different. Now, it's tempting to assume that we would never, never, never do something like that. That we would never be so blind and so obstinate. Maybe we'd ignore it once, but after a pattern emerges, we would certainly be willing to reconsider long-held positions and beliefs. But here's the thing. Changing what we believe Changing what we've held dearly is hard. For them, changing what they believed about Jesus would have meant having to deal with what they did to Jesus. And it would have meant having to deal with what they'd done with the Jesus community and what they were doing with Stephen. All that they were doing to quash the Jesus movement. They would have to deal with the lies. They would have to deal with the bribes. They would have to deal with the sham trials. They would have to deal with the beatings. They would have to deal with the imprisonments. They would have to deal with the crucifixion. All those things were outside what they believed was good. All those things were outside what they believe a good Jew ought to do. There were things that they likely justified because the goal was preserving something that they believed was right. Now, you do enough of those kinds of things those ends justify the means kind of things, those rationalizing behaviors and actions that are inconscionable kind of things. You do enough of those, and it becomes harder and harder to be willing to consider that you might be wrong. It's really easy to go from defending what we believe is right to avoiding having to admit that we were wrong. It's really easy to go from defending what we believe is right to avoiding having to admit that we might be wrong. But here's the thing, when we become more concerned with avoiding having to admit that we were wrong than embracing what is good and true, we will miss the opportunities to learn, to grow, and to be refined. We will miss those opportunities, and we'll miss signature moments. And it's not just the Jewish authorities in the first century that are prone to that. We're all prone to that. We're all prone to that. that. So how are we going to guard against it? A book called But What If We're Wrong was released a few years ago. Now, the content of the book has marginal connection to what we're talking about, but I'm going to steal the title to sort of help us uh, have a principle of how to deal with these kinds of situations. It'll help us not miss the signature moments of growth, of refinement, and of learning. So here is Jaime's But What If I'm Wrong principle. Live out your beliefs and convictions in such a way that you'd have nothing to be ashamed of in how you behaved or how you treated those you didn't agree with should it turn out that you were wrong. i say that again. Live out your beliefs and convictions in such a way that you'd have nothing to be ashamed of in how you behaved or how you treated those you didn't agree with should it turn out you were wrong. Because it's really easy to justify lots of things when we're right, when we're convinced that we're right, but it feels very different if we have to consider that maybe we did it to people who were right and we were wrong. Now, hear me. It's not a matter of not having beliefs. It's not a matter of not having convictions. It's not a matter of not being certain about anything, and it isn't about being quiet either. It's about humility, And how we live in light of our beliefs. And how we live out our convictions. And how we speak about them. It's about humility. It's about being open-handed. Because here's a secret. We're all wrong about something. In fact, we're all wrong about lots of things. Lots of things. But if we have to deal with shame at how we lived out the things that we thought were true that turned out to not be true, if we have to deal with the shame of the things we rationalize doing to the other side, we will resist admitting that we were wrong in order to avoid dealing with the shame. We would rather stay in the wrong than admit it and have to deal with the shame. And that means we'll resist embracing what is good and true. We'll miss a signature moment much like the folks in the passage did. Now, on the other side of their missed signature moment is Stephen, and Stephen is having a signature moment of his own. It's the signature moment that comes when we face opposition and injustice, and we have to decide how we're going to meet that opposition and that injustice. Here's what they've done to Stephen. They've tried to argue him down. They've gotten people to lie about him. They've twisted his words. To make him sound like a threat. They've brought him before a sham trial. They've threatened him. They've tried to ignore him. They've tried to silence him. They've done violence to him. Ultimately, they kill him. Throughout that whole process, does he return violence to them? No. Does he become bitter towards them? No. Does he give up and back down? He does not. Does he malign them? No, he does not. Here's what he does. He engages them over and over again. He refers to them not as enemies, but as brothers and fathers. He doesn't other them. He doesn't push them out because he wants to bring them in. He tries over and over again to get them to listen. He makes the most compelling case he can. He's willing to speak a hard truth, a difficult truth, Because it's what they need to hear. It's what he hopes will help them turn the corner. And with his last breath, did you catch what he does? He appeals for their forgiveness. Even though they are killing him, he has a signature moment. In the face of opposition and injustice, here's what sets us up for a signature moment hold tight to love, hold tight to truth, hold tight to mercy hold tight to grace. These are values that are missing, particularly in our public discourse currently. And we're missing signature moments. We're missing modeling how to disagree well. In the 1940s, the U.S. Navy began utilizing what ended up being two-thirds of the island municipality of Vieques, which is part of Puerto Rico, where I'm from. They started using it For military exercises, though the colors aren't very clear, the left and right sides of the islands are what the Navy uh, took over, and sort of that middle sliver or middle section is what was left to the people in Vieques. Now, over the years, there were lots of training exercises, there were lots of weapons fired, lots of munitions tested, lots of uh, other countries even had the opportunity to use the area for training exercises. It was incredibly strategic. There was also lots of waste created and hear me I don't dismiss the value of those exercises for military readiness There was a benefit to the armed forces from using this island but at the same time the years of this was disruptive in very harmful ways to the lives of the residents of Vieques. there are to this day long-term health consequences attributed to the way the island was used People suffered and are still suffering. So it's no surprise that eventually a sustained effort arose among locals and eventually among the whole island, even attracting the rest of the world. There arose some significant protest to the Navy's presence, protest to ask for its departure and to ask for the cleaning of the land that was used. Ismael Guadalupe has been advocating since the 1970s For his fellow neighbors of Vieques. He didn't start out as sort of a political advocate. He didn't start out as a fighter, so to speak. He was a teacher on the island. He was a local fisherman. He fished the waters around the island. But he saw what was going on and he felt this this has to change. Over the course of the years, he's been arrested for civil disobedience He's spent time in jail, he's been maligned, he's had things said about him that were not true, but he's also been able to speak into the ongoing efforts to bring closure and a peaceful resolution to the situation. He's continued to be able to speak into the need to clean and restore the land. Now, I'm sure that there have been times where he's been angry. I'm sure there has been times where he's lashed out in bitterness, But what consistently comes across when you hear Guadalupe talk, when you see him, even see him there sitting with that large folder, what consistently comes across is that he tells the story of the people of Vieques. He tells the story of the people that he knows who have suffered. And he emphasizes over and over again that this isn't about confrontation. This isn't about fighting. This is about the land that these people were born in the land that they love, the land that they want to be able to live their lives out in, the land that they want to be well in. It's been this consistent message that has said over and over again, this is not the way it should have been, and we ought to be able to do better moving forward. It's what kept, what's kept him grounded. He's had a story to tell. Having a story to help ground you in the face of opposition and injustice can prove crucial. Stephen has a story that's grounding him. It's the story he tells. It's the story that God had been writing throughout history. It's a story that saw a key moment of culmination in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He recalls it and tells it in the the face of opposition and injustice. He sees himself in God's story. And that enables him to stand in the midst of the opposition, to remain true in the face of injustice and opposition. It even enables him to see God in the face of opposition. And that's a signature moment. It's the type of signature moment that we can have when we choose to meet opposition and injustice in a different way. Focusing on God's story is a key part, not just of Stephen's signature moment, but of the last signature moment that I'm going to connect to this passage. It's one we didn't get to read but it's one that flows out of what happens in this story. Because even though Stephen seemingly did everything right, it would appear to us that the story doesn't end well for him. They kill him. He dies. It's a horrible injustice. The rest of the Christian community might be left wondering, what now? If it could happen to Stephen, it could happen... To all of us, are we next? Are we next? And then when persecution starts to break out, just after this passage, it sure seems like it. It seems that the time of the Christian movement thriving has come to an end. It seems that the one who, ones who trumped up charges with lies, the ones who perpetrated injustice, the one who, who, who brought about opposition, won. But that's not what happens. The community had been growing in Jerusalem. And when persecution comes, most of them leave Jerusalem. And for a moment, it may look like the liars, like the people perpetrating injustice have won. Because this is what they wanted, to quash the movement, to kill the momentum. What you get in the rest of the book of Acts is that God is telling a different story. You get people trusting in God over and over and over again, and two things happen. One is actually a very strong presence remains in Jerusalem, grounding the Christian movement, tethering it to its beginnings. And then Christian communities start appearing all over the Roman Empire. Where there were no Christian communities before, now there are Christian communities. Now, there is a stream of thought that says, well, God brought about this persecution in order to send them out. I'll make one comment about that that doesn't seem consistent with what God has done throughout the Scripture, and it doesn't seem consistent with what He's been doing in the book of Acts. What I'd rather say is God didn't let the efforts of the persecutors win. What they intended for evil... God brought about good through. God brought about good through. God was writing a different story. And it wasn't a story that ended with the death of Stephen and the death of the Christian movement. It was a story that saw the Christian movement spread throughout the world. God doesn't let evil have the final word. Tragedy and pain are unavoidable. We may not experience it like Stephen and the community did, but we will experience it. Every life experiences tragedy and pain. But when those things come, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity for a signature moment. And what defines whether we get it or not is trust. It's trusting in the one that is writing the story and trusting that he has something better in store. When tragedy and pain enter our lives, lean into the story God is writing and trust that it is ultimately good. Trust that it is ultimately good. Now, it's not about ignoring the tragedy. It's not about pretending that the pain doesn't exist. It's not about simply not feeling the pain or the sadness. It's about holding out hope for the word that comes after tragedy, for the word that comes after pain, for the word that comes after loss, and believing that it is a better word, that it is a good word, that it is a word of life and of blessing all of us are going to experience tragedy and pain. We're all going to face opposition and injustice, and we're going to have to deal with the fact that we're wrong about one or more things. They can all be signature moments. They can all be signature moments for good. Don't let yours pass you by. Let's pray. Precious God, thank you. Thank you that first, when we let signature moments pass us by, There's more to the story. You bring about more opportunities. But Lord, we don't want to let a single one of them pass us by. We don't want to say no to a single opportunity for good, a single opportunity for transformation, a single opportunity for leaving a better legacy. So Lord, help us remember what we need in the moments when it's hard to say yes to your signature moment. Help us embrace it in the face of loss, in the face of tragedy, in the face of opposition, in the face of having to consider that we might be wrong about something. Give us humility and give us love, Lord, that we may pass something better on. In Jesus' name, amen. All throughout this series, we've been responding not just individually but as a community. We've been charting the story of Scripture and picking out God's signature and our response in each story. And so, throughout the weeks, we've been compiling words and we've been creating sort of this image of what God's signature is in Scripture and what our response is to God's signature. And these are the words that have come up over and over again words like love, words like strength, words like compassion, words like forgiveness. Those are God's signature. There's also correction, there's second chances. And then we thought about how we respond. Words like repent and listen and embrace and humility come up over and over again. Our hope is that we're sourcing God's word for us, God's signature in our lives and what a response might be. It seems like God might be saying something to our community. So we're going to add to that today. Here's how we're going to do it. On your seats or under your seats, there is an index card. And either in the seat backs in front of you, under your seats, or in a couple of seats on your rows, depending on where you're sitting, there are pens. And I want to invite us to respond yet again today. On the left side of the card, which is my right hand, I want you to consider what God's signature is in this passage. What do you see in this story as like, oh, this is how God is. You don't have to write a paragraph. It's a word or two, maybe a phrase. You can write that on the left side of the card. God's signature in this passage, and then on the on the right side of the card, my left hand, what our response is. And looking at God's signature, right? If God is love in this passage, how do we respond to God's love? How would you respond to God's love? One or two words of how you might respond to God's signature in this passage. I'm going to leave this up for just a second, and uh, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to sing a song. While they're singing a song, I'm going to invite you to take that, uh, that index card. And in the back, we have a, a, cork, a board where we've been posting the signature moments throughout this whole series. We have thumbtacks there. Grab a thumbtack, paste your index card as we continue to build on what we see is God's signature and our response throughout the scriptures. So let me pray. Gracious God, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see what is clearly your signature in this passage. And not just that, Lord, but call us to respond. Lord, for some of us, the response seems obvious, and it's the one you want from us, the one you are inviting us to. For some of us, the response is something that we might be wanting to avoid. Lord, may we resist writing the easy word in order to write the word that you are calling us to. In Jesus' name.